welcome to Star Trek Comic Book Review. Our several-year mission will be to boldly go where no podcast has gone before. We will be reviewing every Star Trek comic book ever published. These stories have been released by Gold Key, Marvel, DC, Malibu, Wildstorm, Tokyo Press, IDW, and others. Star Trek and all that the Star Trek universe contains is copyrighted by CBS Studios, Inc. Hello and welcome to Star Trek Comic Book Review with Donovan and Ken. Episode number 29 for January 27th, 2011. 29? I had 28. That's awesome. <laughs> I think we, it's 29. Yeah, you're right. Uh, I, I looked it up. Okay, good. We're just, o- we're just older and been doing this longer than I thought. <laughs> yes, we have. So, yep. So, episode 29, and we are still in the motion picture era. We are. And we have quite a treat today. Oh, yeah. This is a good one, guys. <laughs> and when I say good one, I mean... Buckle I'm, up. I mean, I'm sorry. <laughs> All right. So, today we are going to be reviewing comic strip number seven, um, comic strip number eight, and Marvel issue number eight. Yes. And they're all pips. Yeah, so these will actually probably go a little quicker than normal. One, because the comic strips were kind of short. And two, because they're not the best we've gotten so far on on either one of these series. How generous of you? Generous in what way? Uh, Not calling them bad. (laughs) We'll save that for later, I guess. Uh, Okay, okay, fine. fine. All right, so in saying that, let's just jump straight to... uh, Uh, comic strip number seven Uh, another bad thing about this is that these are the last two storylines that Thomas Warkington uh, even worked on Hmm. so I think he was just I I, I think he was just just phoning it in yeah maybe maybe or yeah maybe he just ran out of ideas or he was moving on to something else and he just had to squeeze these two out really quick maybe that's why they're so short I don't know squeeze it out quick (laughs) yeah that's about right All right, so let's just jump into it. So comic strip number seven was entitled Heads of State. My favorite. Out of the three, that's your favorite? Oh, that's sarcasm. Okay. Good. All right, so these came out uh, starting in uh, January 18th, 1981 to March 21st, 1981. So the writer and the artist is Thomas Wardkinton, and it's based on a story by Peter Jacoby. So we start off, Kirk and the Enterprise is sent to Zeta Etes to meet the, the new leader of the planet who has been threatening to leave the Federation. Uh, it seems that this new leader, whose name is Imperator Dicronus, <laughs> Imperator Dicronus. I would say that's right, Dicronus. Dicronus. So Imperator Dicronus. Uh, has been a little wishy-washy since he took power, that uh, one moment he's praising the Federation, and the next moment he's threatening to leave it. And uh, so Kirk's there just to uh, see what's up. So in Brute, they get a little bit of background about Zeta Atis, the planet, and it seems that they have a plant called uh, Lozite Ilm, and it's basically a 
bio metal type thing. So it's basically a plant that grows, but its leaves and stuff are metallic. So it's like living metal, I guess. So it, it's a it's something that's used in weapon manufacturing. So it's it's an important planet for the Federation. All right. So upon their arrival, the crew meet Prime Minister Check, who seems very weaselly about allowing them to meet Dicronus. Uh, eventually, they are allowed an audience with the leader after he's taken his nap. So eventually, they do get to meet him, and the meeting is cut very short. You know, they're meeting him, asking him why is he wanting to leave the Federation, and then basically, as soon as they say that, the meeting is cut short because he's too tired and he needs to go to bed. So back in their quarters, the crew suspect that perhaps the leader's being drugged uh, because no one should sleep that much. Then they try to sneak back into the palace and are caught by the guards. And while they're being hustled away by the guards, Dicronus sees them and happily invites them up to meet with him. Uh, he is very positive about the Federation. And then all of a sudden, he gets very tired, and he falls asleep. McCoy looks at him to see if maybe he's being drugged, and they pull off this turban-type hat to reveal a second head. Hence the title of the story, Heads of State. So he has two Hey, heads. I get it. <laughs> so he has two heads. So it seems that the two heads cannot be awake uh, at the same time. So each head takes turns and for very brief moments of time before it falls asleep and the other one takes over. So as they're discussing this, the evil head, which is what I'll call it from now on, wakes up. And he basically accuses them for... Uh, watching him and maybe even making fun of him while he slept. Uh, he then grabs one of these uh, Lozite Elm uh, weapons and is uh, threatening them with it when he trips and chops off one of the heads. Chops it cleanly through. McCoy and Chapel hurry up and beam him up to the Enterprise to try to save the other head and the body from dying and are successful after a very risky surgical maneuver. That takes a lot out of the two doctors. Chak and the revived Dicronus are very pleased that Kirk uh, and his crew was able to uh, save them, and the crisis is averted, and all is right again. The end. So. Heads of state. It all makes sense now. And it was a very the title abrupt. It makes sense. It, you know, the, there was a lot of lead up, and then the resolution and the the. The end of the story was, to me, incredibly abrupt. He just falls on the head, blade, chops his head off. They beam him up. Surgical maneuver. Done. <laughs> well, I think, I think the, 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 the second comic strip we're going to get into eventually, that too seems like they rushed it. It seems right. like they could have done a lot more with it, especially towards the end, but they didn't. They just kind of like, okay, this, this kind of sucks. Let's just get done with it quickly and move on <laughs> to the next one, next story. But, I mean, when you were reading it and, and it, he falls on the blade... Uh-huh. I never saw it coming. I... Did, you, did you know which head got chopped off? Because it doesn't say. No, it doesn't say. So I kept waiting for him to wake up you know, in the recovery room there on the Enterprise and be, like, and be the evil head. Uh-huh. But it never says whether it was the evil head or the good head. It, purposeful amb- ambiguity. Anyways. So it's kind of like, uh, so like Inception in that way. And that it's just left up to the, the viewer? It's left up to the reader to figure it out for themselves. And, now, of course, b- b- both very fine stories have a lot in common. A lot in common. 
<laughs> yeah. So, anyways, this this whole double-headed thing it, it made me think of uh, the president from Hitchhiker's Guide. Oh, either president? that president uh, or the uh, oh, Zaphod Beetlebutt. No, yeah, he, he was the president. Is that his name? Oh, he became it in the end. No, he was that at the beginning. Uh, was Remember, he? he was president, and that's how he got to steal the the ship. Oh yeah, I guess. I guess you're right. Yeah. Uh, but, now he yeah. was funny though. Yeah, he was he was funny, but he had the two heads. He did, and he was the leader of his people. Right, kinda. right, right. Yep, yep. But the the way they tried to hide the head was with like that turban type hat thing. Right. And it reminded me of uh, I don't remember his name, but the guy who had Voldemort's head on the back of his head in the first Harry Potter movie. I don't know if you've caught that one. I didn't catch that. Well, I think I saw it a long time ago. I fell asleep halfway through it. Um, yeah. No, but anyway, it's just it was just you know weird having two heads, and the guy was already kind of chubby at the beginning. So yeah, you had two chubby heads on top of this chubby body. So I don't know. He just looked more cartoony than what I'm used to seeing in these comics. Right. Yeah, yeah I guess so. He looked like something from a Bugs Bunny cartoon or something. Like Elmer Fudd a little bit. Yeah. Anyways. So here's what I said about it. I wrote about it after I read it. I'm trying to find things I, things to like about this story, but I'm having a hard time. The title's pun is not good. The story is not good. The revelation that Imperator Dicranus has two heads is ridiculous, almost to the degree of Spock's brain ridiculous. <laughs> uh, the fact that Dicranus happens to fall in the Lozite M leaf in his hand and thereby chopping off one of the two heads is asking the reader to swallow another big dose of weak writing. Sorry, that's yeah. what I thought. That's, that, those are my thoughts. And I agree with them 100%. <laughs> and they even have the dialogue from Dr. McCoy and, and Dr. Chapel where they're talking about, I have never seen a cut as clean as this one. <laughs> You're, You're like, right. Really? <laughs> I don't know. Don't they use laser scalpels or something? Yeah, but still, he fell on it. Yeah. How would it just sever one head? It's very sharp. As, as Chak pointed out earlier in the story, he had chopped his hand off while trying to pick them when he was a kid. Yeah, yeah, and, and they stuff, keep mentioning how sharp. how sharp those were, but yeah. I don't know. Seemed silly. Yeah, that's all I'm gonna say about it. Yeah, and didn't Bone say something about Lozite M being even sharper than his scalpels? Yeah, and the, and they also made sure they made reference that Doctor McCoy was the only person in the Federation who had ever tried to do a head removal uh, <laughs> before. So I mean, it was just like. Uh, well, sure we, we, is was that a reference? Was that a re- that wasn't a reference to Spock's brain, was it? No, because because he actually said when he tried to do that, he lost both patients, both right. both heads died. But right. still, it seemed a little coincidental that McCoy is the only doctor in the Federation to ever try that. Right. But I mean, we have conjoined twins now, and and doctors are able to remove them with success from time yeah. to time. But they're not joined at that. I mean, they're not sharing the same body and, 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 you know, two heads. I mean, they have some some of their own organs. Right. You ever seen that movie Basket Case? <laughs> no, but it sounds like a great title. 
oh, you got to watch it. It's it's a total B-horror flick. But uh-huh. that's what I kept thinking when I was reading this because basically the premise of that movie is that this boy has a conjoined twin that kind of comes out of his side a little bit. And uh-huh. he's just like this little blob of flesh with a little mouth and hands. And the doctor comes and removes it. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, they're not trying to save that one. So they just throw this little, you know, mass in a bag and throw it out to the dumpster. Oh, but it doesn't die. Oh. And so as the boy grows up, he keeps the he keeps his little brother in this little wicker. Ah. <laughs> he feeds it and stuff. And then the whole story, the whole plot of this movie, which is why it's a horror movie, is that the the little guy will get out every once in a while and kill people and then come back to the the basket. Basket. Oh, that sounds terrible. It is terrible but it's one of those <laughs> movies that are like you know it's so bad that you're just like this is actually kind of good yeah there was a, a movie i don't know if it was made in the 50s or 60s or something like that really low budget but it's a guy with two heads and it was i was a kid when i saw these things or this thing and i don't remember all the details of it but it was kind of a horror science fiction thing whatever and really low budget and the two heads were there and it was like oh my god and then I think when they did uh, the Evil Dead, Sam Sam Raimi and and company did the Evil Dead movies, uh, or no, I'm sorry, not the Evil Dead movies, Army of Darkness. Army of Darkness, right? Right. When they had Ash go through the the two headed thing and then eventually splits apart, I mean that was totally reminding me of that 1950s what uh, B movie. Hmm, I'll have to look up that B movie because I'm a huge fan of Army of Darkness. Yeah, that's a great movie, great film. Cinematic landmark. You know, it really is, and it, and it doesn't get the props that I think it deserves. I agree. Uh, I, you know, I, I do like that movie. Uh, hard, difficult to get my kids to watch it, though. Come on, this is good stuff. Anyway. <laughs> well, I'll be honest. That and uh, Evil Dead and Star Trek were the two things that, uh, and a little bit of Doctor Who is what my wife and I talked about on our very first date. So. <laughs> Uh, a match made in heaven. It really was. The fact that she even knew what uh, Evil Dead was and was also a big fan of Star Trek. And and I knew at least what Doctor Who was, even though i never seen a single episode. That sealed the deal right there. Oh. <laughs> there stars in your eyes. It was, man. It was, it was kismet. That's great. All right, so... I think we've derailed long enough on not talking about this story that we can go ahead and move on to another one. That uh... I think, but I just want to make one one uh, comment about artistry. Oh yeah, what'd you think? I thought Doctor Chapel, in most of the pains, looked a lot more uh, the drawing looked a lot more like Captain Morgan Avery than she did uh, Major Barrett Roddenberry. There, I said it. War- Warkington tends to draw women similar. In similar ways, at least in in this and the uh, the comic we had seen. Yeah, I didn't notice previously. that, but I did notice that her hair, when she had her hair kind of in a bun, yeah, the shape of her head was exactly the same way as Chalk's was, because he had that weird <laughs> thing going too. So <laughs> they both have perfectly spherical heads with a little with a face inside of it. See what I'm yeah. saying? I, I can I kind of see that. But yeah, I see what you're saying. I, yeah, yeah. I, I'm not. I, I, he was really good at the beginning, but even here, his artwork I don't think is nearly as good as it used to be. Yeah. And keep your eyes open in It's a Living. Those of you at, on the viewing public, also, if you happen to have the comic, but there's a female character, a reporter, 
in that in that comic that looks an awful light like Captain Morgan again. Uh, don't don't give anything away. Oh my gosh, I, I I really shouldn't. Okay, all right. So let's go ahead and move to the uh, comic book, the Expansionist Syndrome, Marvel Star Trek series issue number eight. Published date is November nineteen eighty. Creative team Martin Pasco is the writer. Artist David Cockrum and Ricardo Villamonte. Colors by Gaff. Letterer John Costanza. Letterer Ray Burton. Editor Luis Jones. Or Louise? No, whatever. Uh, Editor-in-chief is Jim Shooter. The cover shows Spock in pain and invisibly bound to a tall machine that reminds me of the Enterprise-D's warp core on Next Gen. To each side of him are two insectoid aliens that look like a cross between a praying mantis and a cockroach. Two more aliens are in the background. From the waist down, it appears that parts of Spock's body are missing, like he had been put through a dicing machine that took little square chunks out with no blood. No title or attention-grabbing text is on the cover. The first page presents a single panel with Kirk on the bridge and in pain. On the view screen, alien ships are bearing down on the Enterprise with waves of sound or some kind of radiation hitting the Enterprise and causing pain to the bridge crew. Spock is at his science console with a very weird look in his eyes as if he is in a trance. The title is at the bottom of the page in Star Trek, the motion picture font, uh, which, of course, is the expansionist syndrome. The text boxes tell the reader that they have entered the Agena system on their way to Starbase 14. Two ships intercepted them and used a strange new weapon to immobilize the Enterprise. The next panel is a two-page spread showing the Enterprise directly across from two alien ships operated by a race called the Mox a pattern of overlapping ellipses that look like a riff on the Tholian web is between the ships and holding the Enterprise in place. Below the standoff are scenes of the bridge crew in great pain. Scotty reporting on the, st- on the stasis field that is destabilizing the matter-antimatter generators and making the engines inoperable. Kirk tried to talk to Spock but discovers he is in a state of mind-touch through which the mock inform Kirk that Spock's telepathic abilities suits their needs. McCoy and Chapel are caring for a critically ill agricultural engineer who they are rushing off to Starbase 14 for a heart transplant. If she does not receive it in 24 hours, she will die. McCoy is ordered to the bridge, where he finds the bridge crew still in pain and Spock now standing but still in a trance. McCoy is not affected by pain and sets to work diagnosing the source of the pain. Spock slowly disappears from the bridge in little square pieces with his communicator dropping to the floor. One of the two Aegean ships moves off towards the planet, apparently with Spock, while the other continues to hold the Enterprise in place. They try to use phasers on the alien ship but find that their weapons are neutralized. To make matters worse, Scotty informs Kirk that the matter-antimatter shielding is breaking down, and they have four hours before it will blow up the ship. The remaining Aegean ship takes them in tow and brings the Enterprise into orbit 
around Agena 4. Kirk McCoy and the landing party beams down to locate Spock. They are almost immediately attacked by humanoids who take them for the mocks, which, as we will discover, is really unimaginable based on what the mocks look like. Finally, most of the attackers are stunned with one remaining conscious raider who explained why they attacked the landing party. Meanwhile, on the Enterprise, Dr. Chapel is trying to keep the patient, Professor Fowler, calm, which she is having nothing of. The professor is hot in multiple ways and knocks the sedative hypo out of Chapel's hands. On the bridge, Scotty is reporting to Kirk via communicator that he has not found a way to deactivate the stasis field. He reports the ship's sensors have found Spock 14.5 kilometers from the landing party's current position, and no other life forms are around him. Kirk and the landing party take the coordinates provided and set out to Spock's location. In front of the impressive Mox Citadel, the landing party stops to deal with their guide, who says few orgs other than himself have entered the building and lived to tell the tale. The guide explains that Org is the name of their people. They pull together a disguise for the guide as he tells them his story. The guide's people have been oppressed by the Mox for generations, forced to live in crowded small parcels of land. Death, disease, and starvation have forced them into action against the Mox. They approach the building, and on the way, they come across large, insect-like creatures called Kamar. They establish these creatures have the ability to generate a natural energy shield while awake that keeps them from harm. Meanwhile, in the Mox Citadel, Spock is held against a large cylindrical device that reaches from floor to ceiling. His wrists are held in place uh, invisibly by the machine. He is surrounded by multiple mocks who tell him they do not want to take life since their makers forbade it. However, they say that they will take life if they have to. Their jet-black insectoid bodies and soulless eyes make their threats seem very real. Spock tells him he cannot telepathically link with the Kamar, as the mocks have requested, since it's a violation of the Federation Prime Directive. The mocks say, in that case, they will destroy Spock. Elsewhere in the Citadel, the landing party are searching for Spock, unmolested by the mocks that surround them. They note many Kamar are also in the building, just wandering around. McCoy states the mocks are actually highly sophisticated robots. Kirk realizes that Mox, that they've been spelling M-O-X, is actually spelled M-A-C-H-S, as in machines. Feeding off the shortening of the machine name that probably took place over centuries, McCoy concludes that the name of orgs comes from the word organisms. Yes, I came very close to saying the other word, but I didn't. The party moves on and enters what David their guide calls the High Council Chamber. David raises concern over how late in the day it is. He does not say why. A mock raises an alarm because he realizes David is an org spy. A fight ensues. David shows Kirk the mech's weaknesses, and through use of a tree limb and phaser fire, they are able to incapacitate the guards immediately around them. McCoy asks what the mocks meant by calling David an org spy. 
which triggers David to tell them about the invasion about to take place at sundown. He and the party were advanced scouts for the attack. Kirk says they must rescue Spock, who is only 33.2 meters ahead. They rush the room Spock is held in, destroy the mocks in the room, and release Spock. Spock explains that the mocks took him to use his telepathic abilities to assist in repelling the invading force of orgs. The orgs have been raiding the citadel and destroying mocks in repeated raids. During one of the raids, the mock being attacked had a mind probe device that it used on the attacking orgs. A fleeting thought of the invasion attack was stored in the fallen Mark's memory when it was found later. The Mox realized that they would be wiped out if they did not protect themselves, and Spock became part of that defense, as well as the Kamar. The Kamar not only have the ability to generate force field around them, but they also have telekinetic abilities, very handy, that could be used to repel the attack if they could communicate with the Kamar and ask them to do it. Spock's probable ability to mind meld with the Kamar was their only hope to ask the Kamar for the help. Meanwhile, in the Enterprise, Professor Fowler knocks Dr. Chapel out with a hypo and bolts for the transporter room where she is beamed down, saying she could help the planetary crisis. She has overheard McCoy describe to Chapel. On the planet, the org attack on the Citadel begins. Without Kirk's permission, Spock mind melds with the Kamar, talks to them, into using the Kamar's combined telekinetic power to destroy the mock ship that was holding the Enterprise in place. Released and now fully functional, Kirk orders the Enterprise to lay down a wide beam of phaser fire on heavy, set on heavy stun around their coordinates to knock out the attackers and stop the invasion. With phaser fire all around, Professor Hotsta, Fowler, beams into their presence, stating she can end the hostility as she faints into Kirk's arms. McCoy reports her heart damage is too extensive. Later, with the landing party back aboard the Enterprise, Kirk and the bridge crew discuss Professor Fowler's desire to stay on a Gina 4 that was granted by Starfleet. She found a way to get the Orgs, Mox, and even Kamar working together instead of fighting each other. Kirk goes on to report that the mock databanks say that the orgs are actually descendants of Earthmen that left Earth decades earlier to flee the eugenics wars. The mocks were their more sophisticated machines that over time developed into independent robotic entities. The two groups split and developed on, on their own paths for centuries. Kirk and Company's actions did not conflict with the Prime Directive because the Mox and Orgs are not native to the planet. Professor Fowler contacts the ship from the planet's surface, stating that she could not be happier with her new Mock-manufactured artificial heart and her role in their society, helping them along a, per- a peaceful trajectory. With all looking well, the Enterprise leaves orbit on their way to their next thrill-packed adventure. The end. A lot happened there. A lot happened, and not much of it good. Mm. <laughs> so what do, you, what do you think of the story, Donovan? Uh, I was not a big fan. Me neither. Uh, I thought it was pretty complicated. Um, Unnecessarily complicated, and yeah. not 
at all well explained. Yeah, and the end, when they finally wrapped it all up, like you say, not explained well. I mean, it just, the ending was too pat, and it really didn't make sense, and, you know. None of it made sense, dude. Yeah. This whole, this whole story, I'm like, what is going on? Did I miss something? Is right. there pages missing? Uh, I even went back and pulled up issue number seven to make sure that it wasn't some sort of continuation that I had totally forgotten about. <laughs> I was like, I was lost, dude. Uh, yeah, not good. The artwork, a lot of it was good, but there were times that the drawings were not good. I mean, there were multiple times where Kirk didn't look like Kirk at all, but other than that, it was. I thought it was decent artwork. Oh, and of course, Spock. <laughs> Spock looks really weird in those first several pages. Exactly. I mean, he's supposed to be in a trance, sure, granted. But, man, he just look he looks scary. Well, his yeah. eyes are like two or three times bigger than they're supposed to be. Right. As if he's like really wide-eyed and in the trance. But, anyways, I wasn't a, I wasn't a huge fan of this artwork, to be honest. Everybody's eyebrows were kind of always arched in this weird way. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and of course, they're tr- uh, when I said earlier about Spock's body looking like it, it was diced up, little chunks, like squares, are, are missing and stuff. Right. That apparently was the the way they tried to get across the Mox transportation effect. Yeah. So when they transported Spock around, that's that's the that's what it looked like. Right. Yeah. It looked digital. Right. Yeah. With squares. Weird. Well, well, back then that was that was cutting edge. Everything was little squares. <laughs> okay. I'm uh, talking about digitally wise. When you saw like when you saw a computer game or something, it was always a bunch of little oh, squares. Yeah. So oh, yeah. I think that's what they were trying to go for. Oh really? Yeah. I don't. Yeah, I guess know. so. Yeah, that could. But be but it. I mean, when when he gets beamed off and and it beams everything but his his communicator bracelet, mm-hmm. and then they say they must know that we can't beam him back unless we have he unless he's wearing that bracelet mm-hmm. I was like when did that ever happen I mean they're always beaming people back and forth who I mean all they do is get a fix on their life signs and beam them up exactly and later on they even get life signs he's 33.3 meters in front exactly. of you exactly yeah why couldn't they just beam him up yeah exactly okay the Enterprise. Well, you found him just beam him up and beam us up too and we won't even have to mess with these little <laughs> insect guys exactly Oh, man. Yeah. So um, I, I will just comment, get a little bit, um, get in kind of like a, a college mode here. Uh, there are definitely a handful of patterns that are used over and over again in Star Trek stories. And this particular one is uh, the pattern where you know early strikes of uh, Earth ships out into space are, are eventually, over long periods of time, caught up by, uh, by the Enterprise. Or any sh- any ship with the warp drive technology. Right. So the uh, the original Cage pilot kind of used this. There's mm-hmm. multiple comic books we've gone over that use this. So here's another example of that particular story uh, pattern. Yep. Uh, not a great pattern, or not, not a great use of that pattern, but you know, it's another example there. Yeah, um, and it was the whole mystery. Would you know right. your this whole mystery about the mechs and the orcs and I don't know. The, the the payoff or the revelation right just did not make sense no and uh, and the orcs or orgs whatever 
Right. Um, they, they they were kind of weird looking too. Actually, they kind of looked like like Spock. Big old wide eyes and kind or big eyes and really unhappy people. They're blue. <laughs> yeah. They're blue and they're bald and you know they now, say why did they become blue? Yeah, they said that the lower gravity and something made them you know uh, evolve differently than humans, but. Yeah, well, I don't understand. Evolved, I, mean, I, I mean, they weren't... Okay, yeah. so the eugenics wars, how, how much, what, that was uh, a couple hundred years earlier? Yeah, the 1990, so yeah. Right. So, I mean, how long have you got to to mutate? I don't know. And may, maybe if it truly is mutation through radiation, maybe that makes sense, but I mean, they, they, they just have scary-looking eyes. And... These guys. Well, they kind of look like... Uh... Like the Martian Manhunter from DC Comics. Oh. Hmm. Except he's green and, and these guys are blue. Yeah. But, yeah. all right, so not not to derail your your thing, but. You're derailing my thing. All right, I'll let you finish, and then I, I need to ask you a very important question. <laughs> uh, okay. Uh, let, let me let me just hit a few bullet points real quick, sure. and then you can ask me the very. The Agena ships look like they're from Star Wars, not from Star Trek. It was interesting how they had DeFalco in the story, a female navigator. Uh, so that was interesting. They had her in this, but really they didn't use her very much. I mean, that could have been anybody in, in the place of DeFalco. So it was kind of interesting seeing a lady, another lady introduced, but really she didn't do much. Yeah, I meant to say that last week that I really like that they're using DeFalco as yeah. a character. Instead of just sticking Chekhov back in that spot like they do in the later movies. Right. So, I mean, like, these writers are at least trying to explain that Chekhov doesn't have the same job he used to in the old TV show. So we need to put somebody else in there because Ilya died. Whereas I think the writers of the movie were like, "Uh, just put Chekhov back there. That's that's where he's supposed to sit. (laughs) That works for us. Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, Well, I mean, yeah. Well, at least he was on a different ship. When, uh, only when, at, the at the beginning of Wrath of Khan, but I mean, even right. during Star Trek: The Motion Picture, he had a different job. Yeah. And well, so, was wasn't he like uh, second in, second in command or close to it or something on the Enterprise? No, no, no. On uh, at the at the the Reliant. Yeah, he said he was a commander. Yeah, so it seemed like he took a, quite a step back to be in uh, on the Enterprise, but yeah, during Star, at Star Trek Five, because that's technically, I guess, the first time he got posted to something else again or he actually yeah. got posted back to the enterprise right yeah no it was a step down but none yeah. of none of them ever move up so they all must just really love kirk and don't ever <laughs> want to get promoted we just want to be here or maybe maybe kirk's trying to hold him back or maybe it's actually william shatner trying to hold him back but let's not get in let's not go down that that path all right okay, so uh, uh the professor the Professor Fowler character was just absolutely weird to figure out, but she was cute. Other than that, I she mean, has the 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 sixties short skirt. Yes, I mean the ridiculously short skirt that doesn't explain why she's wearing this tiny little skirt in the hospital bed, <laughs> about to die. <laughs> right. So anyway. Yeah, and, but you know her hair looked good. Uh, yeah. There, there's at least one page where Kirk looks a lot like Pike, more like Pike than he does Kirk. And that's on the page where McCoy realizes that orgs equals organism. Uh, yeah, unfortunately, these pages pages aren't numbered. But anyway, just go back and look later. 
Kirk looks like Pike to me. The way he's drawn. They're in the they're in the Citadel at that time. They're in the Citadel, and it's where where McCoy goes organisms, as opposed to the other O word I could say. Okay, yeah. that's all I have to say. You you asked me that question, man. Uh, what was it? It was very important at the time. Oh yeah, yeah. What was keeping the people in the city? Because the the ma- machines have never killed anybody. Because it's against their programming, but they're willing to start to save themselves. But the hum- these these organisms or orgs or whatever they are, right? They say that they can't leave the city because they'll get. There was danger, so they they well, yeah, they're it, living on top of each other. You know, it's totally inconsistent. I mean, it makes it sound like the mocks are well. It definitely comes out and says the mocks are crowding them into uh, small areas. Right, and they're like. So how they do that without dead. the threat of how they do that without the threat of death or something? Exactly, it, it doesn't make any sense. Yeah, and it was like, well, every org gets told this as their as a child, and then you see this flashback of this, you know, uh, blue man talking to his son, and they're in a very nice room, and he's basically telling his son that that they're superior to the the mocks, and then the next panel is it shows like something from. Terminator or something where it shows all like dead people everywhere and people are just like walking on top of skeletons and things like that. Right. But was that because of starvation or is that because of actual direct I assume that it was aggression by the mocks. I assume it was overpopulation type thing because they couldn't leave the city because they were going to get killed. Mm-hmm. And then later on when they the mocks tell Spock that they never killed anybody but they will start to save themselves, I was just like, well, then what was stopping them from moving? Mm-hmm. It's just really inconsistent, and it, again, just was confusing. Yep. And this is the one that you like the least. Out of the three that we're reading today, this yes. is my least favorite. Yep. Exactly. Yeah, and my least favorite is Heads of State. Heads of State. <laughs> uh, so, so the next one we're going to read, It's a Living, will be one of our favorites. Well, it's kind of in the middle. <laughs> <laughs> For me. Right. Anyways, back to this one. You know what this story reminded me of, especially with the kind of jumps in logic and just weirdness. Some of those gold key comics that we were in. Oh, that's true. And then they even used the phasers, kind of like they do in the gold key, where they're like, just set them to burn down a big path in the the foliage and things like that, which I've never <laughs> seen anywhere but in those gold keys. So yeah, that was kind of interesting. All right, the last thing I have is to do with this whole heart transplant for the girl. Right. Um, why Professor can, Fowler. Why can McCoy not do a heart transplant on the Enterprise? I mean, does it, he just not have a donor? He doesn't have the facilities. Right. So, I mean, you have... Yeah, and I would think not having a heart to put in there might be a problem, too, but... Yeah, but he never says that. And why can't no. they make an artificial heart? I mean, they have artificial hearts now. Yep. Well... Yeah, I mean, yeah, you'd think we would have artificial hearts by, by by this period in time. Well, you know that Picard gets an artificial heart. There you go, but that's further in the future. But still, you would think that by... Uh, but we have artificial hearts now. <laughs> oh, they... Do- yeah. Oh, come on. I mean, you don't you don't go out walking around with an artificial heart. They're just prototypes. It'll get you there long enough till you can get to Starbase whatever, whatever, and get your... <laughs> <little one. laughs> 
Okay. Okay. But anyways, my little snarky comment was, uh, why why does McCoy not have the facilities on the Enterprise to do this? I mean, uh, John Connor's wife in Terminator Salvation yeah. was able to do a heart <laughs> transplant in a tent out in the open of a desert. So, oh, that's a doctor. <laughs> that's a doctor there, baby. So she's better, that's, that's your guy. That's who you want. She's better than McCoy. I never thought that. What was uh, her name? I wouldn't think Brewer? so. Kate, I don't remember. Kate Brewer or something like that? I saw that movie once, and that was it. It was pretty good. It, 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 I, uh, I liked it up until that part where she did a heart transplant in an open-air tent that looked like, yeah, that... you know, that made those tents in MASH look like state-of-the-art hospitals. <laughs> yeah. Anyways. That, there, yeah, a lot of that movie was okay. Was was good. It went good, okay, and then, come on! But anyway. Yeah. Whatever. Anyways. Hopefully, hopefully we didn't spoil Terminator for any of our vast listeners. Well, it was supposed to be the first of another set of three. Yeah, uh, somebody told me that I that, that Terminator that. Salvation is considered one of the biggest flops of all time. Oh, really? Of all time? Yeah. Oh, wow. hmm. Which is unfortunate because I, I didn't think it was all that bad. Well, Star Trek The Motion Picture was considered a flop, too. Because it cost so much. Yeah, but... I don't know. Thank God they uh, they tried again with Wrath of Khan. And hit a home run. Exactly. This time, let's have lots of action, lots of people dying. Let's do it. Let's let's make sure this one works. And they did. Very good story. Hey, you know what? Now that I think about it, this Heads of State and It's a Living, Yeah. I mean, they're, they're definitely a different tone than that last one where people were being slaves and... There was all the the people dying. You think maybe yeah. that might have had something to do with why these two stories are just kind of off, and you know they're kind of lighthearted a little bit and not as good as the other ones. Maybe he got some well, flack for having so much violence in the, that story, and I don't know. Well, maybe. I mean, I definitely know that when Leonard Nimoy was being interviewed about uh, the fourth Star Trek movie, Voyage Home, whatever. With the whales thing. They were talking about how the first three films had kind of a high body count. So they wanted to do something a little lighter, less violent, you know, whatever. So they do the whale movie. Which I liked. There's only that, a couple people who die in the first one. Oh, no, I guess they kill a whole space station. So I well, guess that's uh, a lot of people. Three, three uh, Klingon ships, a uh, space station. Yeah. Ilya, Decker, and those poor unfortunate people on the transporter bed. Ah, yes. Spock's replacement. Yeah, who yeah. was not Zahn, but some other Vulcan guy. All right, any more on this comic? Because we we keep going, not a thing. Keep going off, and that's probably because we don't have anything good to say about these. <laughs> yes, I do apologize for my negative my negativity. I am sometimes too negative in these reviews. Yes, but man, it's hard to find positive things about these three stinkers. Go ahead, Donovan. <laughs> wow, with a setup like that, I don't know how I can. Uh... How I, can live I don't know, but, you know, I guess all I can say is it's a living. <laughs> all right, so this is the eighth comic strip. Uh, these were released from March 22nd, 1981 to April 25th of 1981, uh, entitled It's a Living. So the writer and the artist, for the most part, was Thomas Wardkinton. There's a guest artist at some point named Ron Harris, and... To the best I can tell, he only did the Sunday strip for April 12th, but Ron Harris actually takes over the art 
going forward starting in the next issue so maybe that was his trial run that one strip but anyways so here's the synopsis and this was probably the shortest one so my synopsis is incredibly brief so the the Enterprise is ready to depart Starbase 22 when they're notified that they are to have a passenger uh, that's been personally assigned to the Enterprise by Admiral Nagoya it turns out that it's a documentary reporter uh, and that she's there to follow and record Kirk's exploits. Basically, it's a ratings boost for the uh, – like a morale boost for the Federation to think of Starfleet in a positive light, which was kind of weird. But anyways, that's why she's there. All right, so – How could they not because of all the times the Enterprise pulled the humanity's flesh out of the fire? Come on. Well, so far they've only done it once, right? Against Beejer. And you know how it is. It's been, well, a, it, well, it's been entire... a year since V'ger, so people are starting to wane and start looking at the next best thing. <laughs> okay. All right. Good. Anyways, they arrive to Argus 4, uh, where they're supposed to try to help some mining, uh, a mining team find a reason why the planet is having these severe earthquakes. Uh, when they arrive, Kirk is introduced to the new owner of the planet, who is none other than... Mr. Harry Mudd, who we've all seen in several episodes of the original series, and is probably one of my least favorite reoccurring characters. So uh, they scan the planet, and they find that there is some massive life forms underneath the surface. As they continue to investigate, the quakes continue and intensify, and eventually they decide that they need to evacuate the whole planet, which Mudd is not too happy about because he did just purchase it. Uh, once everyone's aboard the Enterprise and in orbit, Kurt starts to put the moves on the reporter lady. Uh, and just as he's about to seal the deal, he's called away because there's something strange happening to the planet. When he gets to the bridge, they actually watch the planet break apart. Mud sees this, and he steps away to talk to the previous owner of the planet. And then he comes back that he's sold the rights to the planet back to the original owner for half of what he paid for it. Because, you know, he saw that he was about to lose a lot of money because the planet was about to explode. Anyways, the planet continues to break apart, and a huge creature emerges. And they find out that the planet is actually a huge egg. <laughs> yeah. So uh, while all the raw materials that they were mining are now floating apart in space, the new owner is looking forward to being a huge winner here because now they don't even have to mine it. They just can just pull it. Grab it out of space. Yep, exactly. And Mud is very disappointed because now he's a huge loser, which in every episode of Star Trek, he always ends up to be that way. So the Enterprise drops a probe to monitor the huge creature and then heads off to its next adventure, the end, which I thought was a very abrupt ending. I mean, you don't even yeah. get to see a good picture of what that creature is that comes out of the Not planet. a thing. And that's a huge find. You ain't kidding, and they don't care. And they're like, they... hey, we'll just drop a little probe. See yeah, you later. And they make a little joke about not wanting to stick around to find out what it eats. Yeah, it was but like, I think I would geez, want to follow it, it, it a little bit. Exactly. This is like the biggest creature, or one of the biggest creatures anyway, that they've ever come into contact with. I mean, wouldn't you want a scientific curiosity? Yeah. Yeah, the, the, the whole thing was just bad, stupid, and uh, cut cut too short. Yeah, it was a little crazy. Yeah. 
And that's... That's about it. That's about it. You know this whole breaking apart the planet and there's something inside of it? Mm-hmm. That's actually redone in uh, the fourth book of the um, Star Trek The New Frontier books by Peter David. The uh, One of the planets that, the, that one of the, the crew members is from, uh, it is actually turns out to be a giant egg and the end of the book it breaks out and and the great bird of the galaxy is released into the the wild <laughs> they actually refer to it to as the as great, the great bird, of, bird the of the galaxy cool which i never knew that that's what uh that that's a nickname for gene Roddenberry until you it mentioned is. it a few episodes back mm-hmm. but anyways i just thought you know as silly as that is here uh in that book they kind of make it a little cooler uh and they don't just drop a probe and pretend like it never happened and head back to Earth. Right. Anyways, that is that is really all I have to say about this whole story. So let me just make a few specific points, like the Babelicious Lieutenant DeFalco looks a lot like, in my opinion, Captain Morgan Avery. And the reporter Joe Williams looks a lot like Captain Avery. And luckily, thank God, at least Uhura does not look like Captain Morgan Avery. So, hey, I at least it. not. Yeah. yeah, I agree with you. So, now DeFalco is she? It, was she the woman that was in the Marvel comic too? Because we called her DeFalco, yeah. but do I they ever so. call her DeFalco? Yeah, I think. Here. Uh, I I don't think I would have just written it down for nothing. Well, I mean, she's she's a pretty major character, or at least a reoccurring character in the uh, comic strip. But oh, I, uh, yeah, and um, I think my comment about the Falco was actually just pointing out that these two these two comic strips that were back to back, the Falco, and now in this comic, this character, Joe Williams, the reporter, looks like uh, Captain Captain Avery. I wasn't trying to say it to Falco. Yeah, but her name is necessarily this is no. Yeah, he's, she's in here. Yeah, yeah, her and na- she's in this one too. Yeah. yeah, but I didn't catch that. You know, because we're reading these. Uh, yeah, I didn't catch that. They actually have the same character in the comic strip and in the Marvel comic book, which is, you know, it's kind of weird to have a character that wasn't in the movies actually appear in two different continuities of Star Trek. Yeah. And also DeFalco, I mean, I th- I don't remember ever seeing the character DeFalco in the TV show. Nope. Or the movies. Nope. I mean, I just don't remember that character. I mean, specifically, but I, I the, the name seems familiar to me. Really? Like, uh, like it might have been a crewman at one point in time, but I think it might have been a guy. You know, he's just a stray crew member. Yeah, maybe. But sure. why would I mean? I'm I'm really excited that these two continuities are using Overlapped. the same character, uh, yep. which you you never see. But maybe Marvel had something to do with making the daily comic strip. I I don't know. No, I I would think not. But okay, so there's a Tom DeFalco. Anyways, I'm, I'm, look, I'm looking up on Memory Alpha. Tom DeFalco. 
Oh, that's a comic book author. No, that's not right. Oh, oh how interesting. Hmm. What's that? Okay, so there's a Chief DeFalco, a comic book character in Star Trek, 1980, Marvel, oh, 11 appearances. So Chief DeFalco was was obviously a different character because yeah. she's not she's not she's Lieutenant DeFalco, not Chief. Yeah, actually, I looked it up. She is actually in Star Trek: The Motion Picture, so that's why they both use her. Uh-huh. She was the relief navigator when Ilya was taken off of the bridge. Uh-huh. Did so they actually did they actually speak her name? They used her name in the novel. Okay. In the novel, okay. The novel Star Trek: The Motion Picture, which okay. Okay. is supposedly written by Gene Roddenberry. Okay. Which I've heard was actually. Ghost written by Alan Dean Foster, but I don't know if that's true. Oh, interesting. Hmm. Why do they do that? Well, Alan Dean Foster was the ghost writer for Star Wars A New Hope, the novel, but yeah. but when you look in the bookstore, it says George Lucas. Oh, really? How yeah. interesting. But Alan Dean Foster actually wrote the story for Star Trek The Motion Picture, because originally it was a two-part pilot for Star Trek Phase 2. Mm-hmm. And he was the he was the writer of the story. So if he didn't write the novel, he at least wrote the story that the novel was based on. So I don't know, you, you know, because it's a ghost writer, you don't know for sure, or if it, you know, you can never find out for sure if he really was a ghost writer or not, unless you just talk to the guy, right? Which I will never do. So oh well. Okay, well, I'm not so impressed now that DeFalco is in both continuities, but still, <laughs> I'm still happy. So she... I'm still happy they didn't just stick Chekhov in there like Star Trek Five right. does. Right. Anyways, anything else? No, not really. You didn't. I thought Mud was one of your favorite guys. Oh, he's not a favorite. I mean, I like him. I like the character. I think he is a good little loci character that just pops up to make trouble. Um, I don't know. He just annoyed me the way he talked, and yeah, especially when he was mean, like when he was on that uh, that planet of the robots, right? That he controlled, and then his his, his robot wife would come out, hardcore Fenton mod, yeah. <laughs> and then and then uh, there's parts where he thinks he's had the upper hand over Kirk and company, and he's a real jerk. I didn't like him then, but. Yeah, he always reminds me of like uh, the stereotypical, you know, carny type character that you, they're all trying to be weaselly and con you out of all your money. So they always talk really happily. (laughs) Kind of like. um, I think that's probably what they're trying to get across. Yeah, but it's it's not a a true stereotype. I've been to many carnivals and they're not like that. They're they're good. They're all very nice. They're good folk. (laughs) They're good. They're good carnival folk. Yes, yes. All right, that's it for me. Do you have anything else? Because it's all you, buddy. Uh, no, not really. No. I'll just comment that how Mud got screwed in the end because of his own greed. I thought that was really obvious and blunt. Uh, but yeah. Well, what I don't understand is why that guy would buy it back. Exactly, but it's for half price. <laughs> and he wasn't aware that the entire planet was an egg that just busted open. Well, he does know they just got evacuated from the planet, so he must have known something was up. 
Oh yeah, well and with all those mud, with all those earthquakes going on, right? Yeah, and then mud suddenly shows back up and is like, "Hey, I'll sell it to you for half off." Uh, my nah. first thought was, <laughs> my first thought would be, "What do you know that I don't yet?" Exactly, I don't trust you yeah, anyway. because you're talking like a untrustworthy carnival worker or something. <laughs> I have heard you guys before. See, negative stereotypes. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Well, three. Stinkers, I'll say it. Stinkers. But, you know, better comics next <laughs> next episode. I hope, eh? hope so. I hope so, too. We get we get uh, different writers and artists for uh, for the comic strip. Now, I'm a, yes. I am a little concerned about the, the art because the, that one he did, the one that Ron Harris did for this story, the yeah. April 12th one, okay. I did not like that art at all. If you look at it, it's uh, it's the one where Kirk has everybody on the he's beamed everybody up to the uh, up to the Enterprise, and he's kind of talking to, giving like his little orientation speech type thing. Mm-hmm. But the artwork to me just does not look right. Mm. I don't know what it is. Maybe their noses are too big. I don't know. <laughs> Something's off. So we'll see how it looks when he does the whole series. Right. So that'll be next week. Okay. I, f- I feel positive, though. I think it's going to be good. So, f- And you should, too. Should you guys come back next episode? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We don't have anything for the Elsewhere in the Star Trek uh, universe, because this was the only thing that came out in November of 1980. Hmm. So... Slow month. Yep. Everybody's getting ready for Christmas. Right. All right. So until next week. So next week we're going to be, in case anybody's reading along, uh, we're going to be reviewing Marvel number nine and comic strip number nine. So they should be a good one, I hope. (laughs) Looking forward to it, man. Yep. So talk to you guys next week on Star Trek Comic Book Review. With Donovan and Ken. Bye. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for listening to Star Trek Comic Book Review. All Star Trek stories and characters are copyrighted CBS Studios Incorporated. All music stories and characters discussed are for entertainment purposes only. You can email us at startcomicbookreview at gmail.com. Visit us at our website www.stcomicbookreview.com Subscribe to us via iTunes or friend us on Facebook at first name ST Comic second name Book Review See you next time on Star Trek Comic Book Review Let's get the hell out of here